What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's episode of the Chase to Must podcast is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Panko Chicken. The new Atlanta restaurant thrives off of a unique spin on Japanese and Western cuisine and is already racking up the awards, winning best-selling taste in the Taste of Atlanta Awards both in 2017 and 2018. So if you're in the metro Atlanta area and are wanting to try something new and good and delicious, Go to Panko Chicken today and tell them that I sent you over. You'll be glad you did, I promise. Panko Chicken, where eats meets West. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. <laughs> um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, welcome back to a Tuesday night edition of the Chase Thomas podcast. On the line right now. My dear friend, John Taylor of Sports Illustrated. John, good evening, sir. How are you doing? I am doing all right. How about yourself? I am good. It's always weird when I do these openers in some capacity because you and I talk before we start recording and I ask you something I've already talked to you about prior to recording, but that's just how the show goes. I wonder if other podcasts and radio hosts think about the same kind of thing where I, why do we do these intros? Because we just, I, I just talked to you before we got started and it feels strange to ask something um, that we just asked um, before we started recording. I, I might be overthinking it, but it is always strange to me that this is something that we're pre-programmed to do. Well, one of the, one of these days I'm just going to respond with a totally different answer than the one I already gave you. And okay. And just see what like, I'm like, we're going to have talked and I'll be like, yeah, I'm doing good. And then you come on, like we start the podcast. I'm just like, man, I, I'm just doing terribly. Like everything is going wrong <laughs> right now and just completely just throw this whole thing out of whack. So you would, um, uh, you would throw me under the bus, and it would be a situation where um, it'd be more of a disaster than the uh, the Nationals bullpen. Right yes, now. that would be the idea. I would just Trevor Rosenthal the hell out of your podcast. Jesus, I'm looking more for a Sean Doolittle situation. Okay, well, I will. I will try my best to approach Sean's unique blend of nerdery and erudition, but uh, I can only do so much. I was looking at Fangraph's playoff odds, um, and I do that way too much anyway, but um, the Nationals, still the the favorite to uh, come out of the NL East in uh, Fangraph's model. It's interesting. It, it is. I find it interesting because it seems like no NL East team is actually good. Like they're all, They all <laughs> just seem to be like mm-hmm. the same 83-win team with a bad bullpen and kind of like questionable managing. Um it's weird. I mean, like obviously, like the Marlins, and it's funny you mentioned the the NL East Fangraphs playoff odds because I, I remember looking at them recently, and just seeing the Marlins just being a straight orange line right at the bottom, just a constant zero. Um, and but otherwise, yeah, it's it's four teams, all of whom seem to be flawed in exactly the same ways. None of whom are like good enough to to just jump out and, and take a kind of 
insurmountable lead atop the division. Granted, I know it's only like May, it's May 7th. So, you know, it's, no one is going to have an insurmountable lead on May 7th. But it's just, it just feels like the NL East is probably just going to come down to like the last two weeks of the season. And it's all just going to be like whoever wins is going to have like 88 wins and then just get the crap kicked out of them in the first round. Um, I think that might be the case for the three teamer between the Mets, the Braves, and the Nationals. But I, I would still bet on the Phillies pulling away at some point. I think the Phillies were going to look back and like or look ahead in um, August, September, and they're up like eight or nine games in the division. I, I, I think, really do think they're eventually going to pull away. I think they're probably the most talented of all the teams, and I think they have the best individual players certainly between Harper and Reese Hoskins and Aaron Nola um, and, and a couple other guys there. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily be surprised. Can I pause for a second with the Harper stuff and counting him as a, a good player? Because I saw somebody on Twitter today, Braves country, very much enjoying Nick Barcakis having a, a solid start to the season. And uh, they did a side-by-side of Bryce Harper's start to the season and Nick Marcakis and um, making jokes basically about like, we already got the last laugh. Like who would, it, do we really need this guy? All those fans who are ripping him for resending Mark Kinkis and not paying Bryce Harper. Um, oh, that is that pretty is, wild. That is spitting directly in the face of God right there. That is, <laughs> that, that isn't just flying too close to the sun. That's like trying to fly mm-hmm. into the sun. Um, by just, you know, pointing at Nick Markakis and Bryce Harper and going, yeah, with Markakis, we got the better one. It's like, no man, that's right. that's not how that's not how any of this works, and that's not how any of this is going to work. Like, man, if if by the end of the season Nick Markakis is a higher wins above replacement than Bryce Harper, and I'll just use that as the kind of you know be all end all mm. de- determination of, of of value and who had the better season, like, shit, I will eat a shoe. Like that's that's just not okay. This is not going to happen. Like. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And I like Nick Markakis. I think he's a perfectly solid player, but like, right? He's, he's come on, like he's not Bryce Harper. We don't on. have to do this, but like this whole thing where it's like you want to prove it's it's just weird. Um, I think a lot of fan bases are going through this, but um, and this goes kind of into something you wrote about for SI this week in your nine innings column, which everybody should go check out if they do not already on sa.com slash MLB. But um, I I think. It's interesting because there's like the we we go full galaxy brain with some of this stuff where it's like um it's see the Braves being cheap actually good because then you're saddled with guys like Bryce Harper and you 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 add on this other stuff where it's like do you really want that guy in this locker room and on this team it's like well yeah I would like to have Bryce Harper and Ronald Acuna and Ozzy Albies and everybody else for the next ten years that'd be great. Uh, sign me up. Nick yep. Markakis also. We we know what he did in the second half last year. He fell off a cliff. And um, uh, he doesn't... like. It, it's just... You know what I'd also like? What if they just re-signed Markakis at his price and then signed Bryce Harper too? You could yeah, have done that. There was nothing stopping the Braves from doing that. There's never been anything that stopped the Braves from spending money except for the fact that Liberty Media uh, seems to have no interest in spending money and wants the Braves to be run exclusively as a you know for-profit franchise, which... I get right. like you know if you're if you own a team like that's that is well within your right as an owner to be like no the most important thing is that the team makes money because this is a business. But at the same time, like I, I, it's a pretty safe bet that Liberty Media could probably spend more than it is currently spending 
and still turn some form of profit. You know, maybe just not as big a profit. But really, at the end of the day, is that really what matters? You know, I, I don't. Know. I mean, I, this is this is this is well trod ground. This particular topic in terms of, um, you know, this idea that teams can and should spend more, and this idea that oh, but why spend more if we're doing just fine without spending in the first place? Imagine how much better you'd be doing if you were spending. You know, right? And that's, this oh, leads that's, into see, that's, that's always the thing with like the raise. Where where people yeah. are like, why why should the Rays spend more than what they're spending? They're the best team in baseball. It's like fair, but at the same time, like they could spend more and they could be even better. You know, they don't they don't have they don't have to do this. You know, no team has to be this way, and and I think that's kind of the thing that that gets lost in a lot of this is that just because it, it it's 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 a Simpsons line that I, I come to a lot, um, just because. Uh, I, I mean, it's not, maybe I'm actually kind of screwing it up now, but I mean, more, it's more of the idea that just because you should, or just because you can, doesn't mean you should. I think the Simpsons line I was going for was, um, I didn't say they couldn't, I said you shouldn't, which is different. Great. Mm. So I, I have failed in the, this one is where thing. I tell you, I've never watched an episode of the Simpsons. Okay. Well, I, I was about to say, I have failed in the one thing all baseball writers must be able to do. And that's not only quote the show, uh, verbatim and with perfect accuracy, but also never screw up a moment like that. So now, now I must pay some kind of penance for this. I'm not sure how, but I'll figure it out. It is interesting. It does seem like the Simpsons is weirdly a, 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 a subculture of baseball Twitter. And yeah. And Carey and all those guys, they're all big Simpsons fans. I, I don't know how that works. It, it replaced because a lot of those guys are just kind of aged out. Um, all the Seinfeld love, which is funny because Seinfeld and the mm. Simpsons are, they're, they're of the exact same time period. I, I think Seinfeld debuted around the same, maybe even after, I think, The Simpsons debuted. Um, it's just, you know, certainly Seinfeld, when it aired, was immediately for adults, and The, and the Simpsons was picked up by all the kids of our generation, so. Hmm. Yeah. I missed the boat, and I, I yeah, I just missed the boat. But um, this is a good lead into what you wrote about the top of your column this week. Um, and you kind of wrestled with the question as to whether or not MLB has an attendance problem and attendance is down. You looked at all that and you look at like situations like in Minnesota where the team's good and they're still in the bottom 10 in the league. And it's like, okay, what do you do here? And you made the point of like, well, it could just be because it's still weirdly cold in Minnesota. I think it snowed there a couple weeks ago. So that's a thing. But um, I there's I'll, I'll pull my favorite quote from this that I, I think really illustrates just kind of what you were going for and really where baseball is going. Um, so you said that should be expected. Baseball is plagued with tanking teams and rosters full of nobodies. Going to a game, meanwhile, has never been more expensive between ticket prices, concessions, parking, and everything else. At the same time, it's never been easier to watch a team through a variety of increasingly convenient mediums, nor have there ever been more entertainment options as opposed to a sport that takes three plus hours to play and features less and less on field action. I think that hits the nail on the head of all the different variables that are at play with baseball's decline. Yeah. And I think a lot of it is some of those things baseball can't control. Like baseball can't do anything about the fact that Netflix exists or that the Marvel cinematic universe exists or that other sports exist. There's, there's nothing they can do about that. And I'm not going to pretend that they can, you know, that's just the reality of living in 2019. Um, 
but they certainly can do something about the fact that it costs so much money to go to a ball game. And I think what I landed on or what kind of my, my point ended up being was like, baseball is an attendance problem almost on purpose, you know, because teams are doing this intentionally. They're intentionally charging more money to, to attend games, more money for concessions, more money for maybe not more money for parking, but parking is just going to be expensive no matter what. And they don't really care in the sense that um, baseball teams have decided that they want to prioritize getting the most money out of an individual person or individual fan or, or, or you know, or, or um, customer, I guess, to, to drill it on down. Then they would, they prefer getting more money out of individual customer than they would getting them at uh, the largest number of customers. Because, you know, they want people who have a lot of disposable income. A person who comes to a game, buys the cheapest seat, gets one hot dog and one beer, and that's it? Why would you want to target that kind of person when you can instead go after the person who will buy, you know, a $150 seat and buy, you know, four $12 beers and also buy some, some souvenirs or something? And I don't necessarily, I mean, granted, I don't know how many of those people actually exist. I've always found it kind of weird, this idea that baseball targets rich people when... Mm-hmm. You know that I, I I would imagine if you were rich, you could find way better ways to spend your time and money than sitting at a baseball game. But I also think that the mm-hmm. part the part of that is the fact that baseball's primary audience is older, white, and affluent. Exactly the kind of people who would go to a game, pay seventy five dollars for a ticket, you know, have multiple twelve dollar beers, buy a thirty dollar jersey, you know, and and that and have that be it. You know, it's it's not they're not going after kids. You know, they're not going after families. Um, but I think also the idea, too, is that you have families who are there. Like, Also, why charge less for this stuff? You have a captive audience, just like an airport, just like a casino, just like any other place where you cannot leave to get something else. Why charge less, you know? And at the end of the day, and this is the kind of the key thing, too, at the end of the day, who cares how many people come to a game at this point? You know, 100 years ago, 50 years ago, 25 years ago, Gate receipts mattered, you know. How many guys, how many people you managed to get through the gates and into the seats mattered a lot. Now, way less. You have huge TV contracts, national and local. You have money coming through from MLBAM from, for streaming purposes. You have sponsorships. You have all these other revenue streams that make up for that, that pretty much have taken the importance of gate receipts away. Um, and especially, it, it also means, okay, so maybe you get, you're getting fewer people through the, through the doors, but those people who are coming are spending more, presumably, and this is a, an assumption, but I think it's probably a safe assumption. They're spending more on average than fans were, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, when concessions were cheaper and when tickets were cheaper. You know, you go after the more expensive fans, so to speak, you get them in the door. One of those takes care of three cheap fans. So I, I think this is the, the deliberate calculus that fans have made, or that fans, sorry, the teams have made, that... You know, we don't need people to be coming to games a lot. So I think when when you wonder, like, or when people wonder, does MLB have an attendance problem? Yeah, it does. I just don't think MLB considers it to be a problem. I think they just consider it to be the new norm. And I think when it comes to the things that MLB teams are most worried about, uh, attendance is probably not even top ten for them. If, I mean, I don't know what what MLB teams consider to be problems, but certainly when you have a situation where they are, you know charging as much as they are for games. And also when half the league is content to run out a team, this is not any good. I, I think it, it really is kind of obvious that they don't particularly care or if they not that they don't particularly care, but it's not particularly important to them how many fans do or do not show up, that they will make their money one way or the other, uh, even if the fans aren't coming. 
Well, you also made the point that um, fans just kind of um, they it's hard to win back that trust. So once you gut the team and you have this roster full of nobodies and you're in the Baltimore Orioles situation or Kansas city Royal situation, um, you can't sell that product. It's just over and you're going to have to bite the bullet on losses and you hope that TV stuff is big and the online apparel stuff and everything else. Um, I do think that's interesting because I, I don't, like you said, we don't know how these teams think and like how much they're actually concerned about um, who's coming through the gate. But um, it kind of this situation, and especially when I was reading your stuff, is it kind of made me think of pro wrestling situation because it's um, different fan base for sure, different types of people, that kind of stuff. But um, the same problem is there where they have stressed streaming stuff, stressed their product like MLB TV, the WWE Network. Go watch this. Go use this. Go watch us on Hulu. Go watch us on TV. We have all these different streaming platforms. Um, there's like, they're making it so it's like, why would I go to this event? Why would I go see this thing? So when attendance is down, it's because look, fans are smarter. And also people I think don't have enough just money lying around to take a family of four. It's kind of like the movie problem. Why are people at the movies less? Well, they could probably watch it at home and, um, (laughs) illegally download it or whatever. Like there's, there's just opportunities that didn't exist 30 years ago where through the gates mattered a lot more because, fans couldn't watch their team if they didn't go to the ballpark that's a different thing and you can't go backwards on that front so ultimately i think the 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 fix here is uh smaller venues like these new stadiums i think they should be a lot smaller like every team should not be going more grandiose and that kind of stuff i'd be like how do we cut more seats make it more intimate and just accept the fact that more people aren't coming and this number is going to keep dwindling and that's okay. The teams will still make money. People will still watch them on TV. But if you don't want a situation where it's like the Miami Marlins and Royals and everything else for a full season where it just looks awful on TV, you got to figure out a way to like get rid of these seats and uh, downsize. You, you've seen teams and I think I mentioned my column, the Rays cut rid of Seating they have a Tropicana Field, which is you know one of the persistent like perennial like you know uh, sparsely attended ball. Which part of that is the mindset was we you know no one's going to these seats anyway. We don't like we hate these shots. You can just see you know like section after empty section. That I think only works in terms of improving the attendance. If you then also like were the prices for the seats otherwise and i don't i don't know what tropicana fields pricing situation is i've never been there i've never looked at tickets there you know for all i know maybe the rays have lowered prices on stuff i would wager probably not though because there's no incentive for them to do that no one's going to those games anyway um and i I honestly think this is something where tampa's its own unique problem in that i think no one will go to those games regardless you know they could be they could be the Yankees in terms of on-field results, and I still think people will not go to see the Tampa Bay Rays. Um, but I, I think that you, you see when those stadiums get smaller, the only the end result just ends up being that there are just more, there are fewer seats, and they still cost as much. So what you're essentially doing is just fully pricing out those fans who cannot afford a thirty dollars seat. And it's like you mentioned, the problem like with families, when you say families don't go to the movies, well, yeah, because I, mean, I went to go see Endgame last week, and as you know, it seems like 99% of the country did. Um, my ticket was $16, I believe, $16, $17. And granted, I live in New York. New York is the most, one, if 
if not the most expensive, one of the most expensive uh, movie markets in the country. But that was just one ticket. And then I bought I bought a water and nothing else because I you know I didn't want to eat or anything because I three hour movie want to be able to you know not have to get up and use the bathroom. But I bought a single mm-hmm. bottle of water and that was still like four dollars. You know if I had added a popcorn. Or no, sorry, I did, I did get a popcorn. So that was a, you know, that's another eight or so. It ends up being $30, one person to go to the movies with a ticket and concessions. And that's the same problem with Bates Arts, like where people are just going to decide. And again, you mentioned it, like, why, why would I go to the movies when I have Netflix and Hulu and Amazon and a quadrillion other streaming options, all full of movies? Literally every movie ever made is available to me now across a million different platforms and on a dozen different devices. Why would I go to the movies? Same thing with baseball, you know, and baseball says that it's like, like you said, it's, you know, with, with what the WWE has done with their WWE network, it's like, you can watch any wrestling match literally ever that we have ever done on your computer, on your home, on your TV, on your iPad, whatever you want. Why would you pay money to go to a wrestling match and end up in a situation like the last WrestleMania? And I'm not a wrestling guy, but I, you know, I, I, because I'm a baseball writer and on baseball Twitter, I am exposed to literally everything that happens in wrestling. Um, (laughs) You know, the, mm-hmm. the situation with the last WrestleMania where the lights were blinding like half the people who were in attendance, you know, they would have been yeah. better off staying at home. And so I think that's kind of, so I think when I say MLB is a tenant's problem, I think they genuinely, there genuinely is no way to fix it because MLB, right. I don't think, has any desire to fix it. These teams, these teams seem to be, and, 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 it's, and it's good that you mentioned the whole, you know, the tanking side of things. If you're okay with making your fans watch a 110-loss team, you clearly don't give a shit whether or not they're showing up. They don't matter to you. You have made it abundantly clear by saying, we're going to spend the next three years losing and losing a ton, that you don't care whether or not the fans enjoy the product put on the field. And, like, and that, that's just a reality that, you know, that we as, and fortunately that we as fans have to accept, because there's nothing, nothing is going to shame these teams into doing anything any different because there's no incentive for them to do any different. And because again, and this is where the whole gate receipt aspect of it becomes so important. You know, it's that old idea that you vote with your feet, you know, that if you don't like something, you don't show up and that you'll, you know, you create the financial incentive for a team to do different. Where's that financial incentive coming from now? You know, the Marlins are still going to get their money from the, the national TV deal that MLB signed with Fox from whatever local deal they have with Fox sports, uh, Florida or Miami or whatever the Pell regional network is one that is now presumably going to get even better that, um, you know, MLB and Sinclair or the, uh, or wh- whatever deal it is. I don't, I'm not getting into the specifics. I'm going to get it wrong, but the whole new MLB Sinclair, Disney, um, Fox regional thing because of Disney buying Fox, um, that presumably there'll be more money there. They're still going to get their revenue sharing money uh, embarrassingly for MLB. That should just not happen at this point. Um, they're still going to get the money, or already did get the money from the sale of BamTech to Disney. Um, there, there, there's just so many ways for the Marlins to get money that have nothing to do with fans, that have nothing to do with the people watching the product. So what incentive is there for the Marlins to put the fans ahead of anything else, ahead of, ahead of improving their, their bottom line? You know. So if, that, if that's the case, if there's essentially no way to make these teams not do this, then yeah, the, then attendance isn't a problem because attendance is clearly something teams just do not care about anymore. I agree. Um, and also BamTech sounds like the shadiest, most likely to get raided by the FBI company. I've yeah, heard it, it, the, it, has a, uh, it has a, it has a real like, you know, Elizabeth Holmes, like Theranos vibe to it. 
Mm-hmm. It's just Silicon a name. Valley, like, yeah, just that, a douchebag who runs this place. Yeah. Yeah, that name is just a real, like, red flag. I mean, not this is obviously not accusing, like, Pam Tech of doing anything. Uh, but just, yeah, no. as you said, like, it's just a shady-sounding name that just makes you think, scam. A scam is about to happen. If you tell someone you work at Pam Tech, if you go on a first date and you're, she's like, where do you work? And you're like, um, uh, Bam Tech. And she's like, um, okay, well, uh, I'm going to go. Yeah, they're going to think you made, <laughs> she, they're gonna think you made that up. Like, right. that's, that's very much a looking around the restaurant, like, desperately trying to, like, like you know, think of something in, in 10 seconds. I work at uh, uh, Bam, uh, Bam Tech. Bam Tech. Bam Tech. <laughs> yeah. Bam Technological. Tech Bam. Mm. Like, it just sounds wonderful. Um, it's very, very Silicon Valley, like you said. Bam tech. What the fuck? Um, all oh, right, well, we're running out of names. That's a word. It's actually funny, and I, I just, to, I guess, to close it out, um, I just saw on Twitter as we're talking about this um, that the twins are going to offer a flash sale, five dollars seats with no fees for games through the end of May. Uh, looks like the tickets are mostly outfield upper deck as a way to kind of goose the crowd numbers. So I guess there is. So I guess the degree teams do still care about this. Um, but again, there, there just seems to be a lot of just kind of deeply and like systemic reasons why attendance is down and deeply systemic reasons that teams do not seem inclined to change. So even, you know, a $5 flash sale doesn't really kind of solve the inherent issue here. I don't think. But God, does it feel good seeing the PSLs being a nightmare for a lot of different stadiums? Yeah, I, I mean, but that that was always going to be a disaster, right? Like PSLs were always going to be a thing that were just never going to work under any circumstance. It was always just going to be fans being like, well, the hell with that. I'm not doing it. Um, you know, because again, teams don't really care about fans. So uh, well, it just it, to add more context to the reason I brought the PSL thing up, the Falcons, um, their defaults on Falcons PSLs uh, have reached uh, 30 million. That's a lot of money. That is a lot of money. And that's funny because the Falcons are one of the few teams where at least when it comes to like the cost of attending a game, just purely on the concession level are one of the few teams that has got stuff right. Like they don't charge a ton of money for, for concession. I don't know what the ticket yeah, price is. But that's a like. misnomer. It's like one of those things. Do you remember that David cross bit? Um, when he was still doing stand up back in the early two thousands, when he was actually really fucking good. And <laughs> he had this, he had this bit about George Bush sending out that tax credit, like the $30 tax credit in the mail. And he has this voice like, he's going to give me a check. And it's like $30. And they're like, that's what I'm talking about. Put money in my pocket and everything else. It's like, no, you're still getting raked over the coals in every other way. Like, it's a distraction. Yeah, The concession stuff is a distraction where it's like you're still paying to drive up to Atlanta. You're still paying to park because there's nowhere to park by that stadium. You're still paying your ticket to get in. You're still paying all these other fees. You still round out to it insane amount of money that day. It's a dumb thing. I was going to say that like I imagine that like, you know, I, since I don't know how much it costs to attend a Falcons game, I figured you were probably losing out on that end of things, that the tickets are just really expensive just to get in the door. And I also think, and I, I, I've, not, I've never attended an NFL game in person, um, mostly because in New York, my options are the Jets and the Giants, and the hell with that. But I've always figured the NFL <laughs> is definitely one of those sports where unless you are, one, a super diehard fan with a crew of people, and thus doing like the whole tailgating thing, or two, have insanely good seats, that it's a much better experience watching from home. 
I would agree. That's why I don't feel comfortable like uh, when people ostracize fans or kind of uh, speak to them condescendingly about not going to games or in like sports radio guys are like, why you got to go to the game. This city needs to get behind this team. They need to go. And it's like, ah, don't tell people how to spend their money and don't shame people for not going to watch a bad product. That yeah, the team like, knows it's a bad product. The, yeah, it's, the, it's ridiculous. And the thing too is like, the, the sad thing is like, I, I mean, and of course I'm going to say this because I love baseball. Attending a baseball game live is so great. I love attending baseball mm-hmm. games in person. Like it's cool. It's it's such a it's such a quiet, chill experience because the game just moves at its own nice, soft pace. And like you know, there are just built-in breaks every now and then with the innings breaks. Um, you know, you don't you don't have to pay attention all the time. But it's it's a sport that where you both can pay attention all the time, and that will and that will be rewarding. But you also don't have to. You know, you you can just be there. And and I know I mentioned. Can I say that's why it sucks a little more for me though? Because like part of what I love about, especially watching NFL games, is I literally, if you look at my notepad, it's so easy for me to just pull up stuff. And there's a little break after each play, and I'm just like, okay, I can scroll back really quickly. Okay, they're running cover two. That blah blah blah. blah. Like I I love taking notes for uh, uh, football and basketball. Basketball is a little bit more difficult. But um, Blake Murphy, by the way, of the Athletic, friend of the pod unbelievable basketball note taker during games i have no idea how he keeps up with what he's writing down and those all those little abbreviations but it's it's impressive i would i want to one day be as good at uh something as blake murphy is at uh note taking during basketball games but continue with your point um i think my point is and i know i mentioned in my story that you know baseball is a game now where increasingly little seems to happen or at the very least like if you go to a game like a third of everything that happens is going to be a walk a strikeout or a home run and, you know, home runs are cool, strikeouts are cool, but there's just so little, like, in-play action, and, and everything takes so long. that I can also kind of understand that, like, well, for some people, yeah, that's nice, you just sit and you kind of relax, and you can, you know, if you're there with people, you can have a conversation as things are going on, or if you're there by yourself, you can just kind of zone out. But I can also understand for a lot of people, that's not particularly appealing. They want something faster paced, like an NBA, which... Um, you know, that that's, and that's fair. And like, I, I, but I think that's also something when it comes to baseball, it's like, and baseball both can and can't control that, you know, that that is, the, that is what modern baseball is. And that that's something that, you know, fans may not find appealing to attend in person. You know, that, that might just be the reality there too. Well, this is a good transition. Uh, people loving dingers and strikeouts. Um, it turns out this was a good piece on fangrass.com. I don't uh, have the name of the author in front of me, but I, I sent it to you because I little things like that I'm I'm just really into. And we've we've seen like we're gonna break the record for most strikeouts um, for a season again this year. That is going to happen, but there are certain players, and it turns out good players change and get better at things. But Cody Bellinger, Matt Chapman. Um, Mike Trout did it a couple of years ago. Um, Tim Anderson got better at it. Um, just a lot of Freddie Freeman. Just you go up and down the list, and you're like, oh, all really good players um, drop their K percentage significantly over um, from last year to this year. And um, the two biggest, I believe, was Chapman and uh, Bellinger. I could be wrong, but um, I thought this was interesting that some players are. Um, uh, you can actually increase your contact rate because we have this whole thing where it's like sacrificing power for contact is just a bad strategy. And we all agree with that. It may make it more difficult to watch and all that kind of stuff sometimes, but it's a better strategy. And this thing is they found no correlation between like 
a higher contact rate and lower K percentage for these guys and a reduced power rate. So it's it's not like it's hurting their power by dropping their K percentage, but it, I wonder if it's only for this like few of stars or whatever, but I, I thought it was fascinating. And then I learned that Edgar Martinez did some crazy stuff um, back in the 90s uh, to get better with hand-eye coordination. And then Robinson Cano um, used to hit uh, beans with a stick to work on his coordination growing up and all this other stuff and i it's a really good piece so i highly encourage everyone to check it out but uh, what did you make of um some players making a conscious effort to increase contact rate while also not sacrificing power and uh the k's stuff you know it's it's funny you mentioned that because about a week or so ago i was talking with an editor because we're kind of trying to put together this package of like what the future of baseball looks like and one of the things I mentioned to him was this idea that batting average, uh, batting average is low. It's it's you know we're, we're I think I don't know what the current MLB league wide batting average is, but it's somewhere in the in the low to mid two forties, which is like nineteen sixties slash dead ball era low. Last year was the same thing. It's basically never been harder to get a base hit, unless we're talking about a home run. It's never been easier to hit a home run, but it's never been harder to get a base hit. And so one of the things I talked about was this idea that, you know, when it comes to making contact, like we had mentioned this idea of, um, you know, given that Cody Bellinger is hitting, if not above 400, very close to it. You know, this idea is like, what, you know, can he be the next 400 hitter? And my takeaway was that not only is there never going to be another 400 hitter, that it is virtually impossible to do that now, that in like 10 to 15 years time, hitting 300, is going to be seen as this crazy thing that only a few select players can do. Um, that it's going that the way the game is is inching away from a contact oriented game and more toward one that's just dingers and strikeouts all the time. You know it, that that you know the guys and there there are guys out there who still do play that super contact heavy game like you know um, Jose Altuve certainly Jeff McNeil. Uh, there's a guy in the White Sox system they drafted out of Oregon State in the first round last year, Nick Madrigal. Um, Williams after Dio guys who can still hit like that but it's rare and I think it's only going to get more rare from here and so it's interesting to see this idea that like you know there are hitters who are trying to train themselves to be better contact hitters but in reality it just seems like more and more hitters nowadays have just decided that it doesn't really matter how much you strike out and I think that that obviously a big part of that is the sabermetric idea that strikeouts are the least damaging out you know at least in terms of the outs you can make or that if they're not the least damaging, because sometimes they, they can be more damaging than an out made in play, that they are not as damaging as you would have imagined before. And I think there's also, I mean, some of that's also the reality that, hey, everyone throws 96 miles an hour now with a, like, wicked, hell-spinning slider. So strikeouts are invariably going to happen. There's nothing you can do about that. Um, I mean, I would love to see in this, like, some old crusty old baseball thought, that, like, I'd love to see contact made more of a priority. You know, I you know I'll put on my 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 John Smoltz hat and complain that a lot of hitters nowadays cannot make contact when they need to. They can't put a ball in play in a in a must in a situation where that would be the most you know helpful. And, and one of the actually one of the other things I forgot to mention too that it certainly has a hand in the decrease in batting average too is defensive shifts. Um, but that's that's its own you know different difficult thing. But I mean, I I would love to see hitters kind of strike back and and kind of try to make more contact and make that a bigger thing. I just don't really think it's realistic. Um, I think there'll be some guys who can do it just at an elite level because, you know, the the best baseball players are always going to be good at that. But I think 
right. more realistic is going to be a league that's full of a lot more guys like Joey Gallo than guys like uh, than guys like Jeff McNeil. Yeah, I I would agree, but it's going to be interesting to monitor. And I just thought it was a piece worth mentioning that I think both of us are fascinated by. Um, Rizil Iglesias, not happy, and um, his rationale for why he thinks he's struggling this year after so much success the last two, I think, is fair. I, I can see the psychological point that he's making of like being used in tie games and being used differently than where it's just like you, you go into a game knowing you have the lead and you're just, you just do your job and you're good. In this, it's like, if you make one mistake, like what does this do? You, this, it's just, I can understand why if you're a closer being used kind of the way that he is, um, would bother somebody. Like I, I get where he's coming from now that is this, probably good for his long-term future in uh cincinnati probably not but thankfully for him uh the nl east every bullpen's a shit show so there will be takers um uh, uh, just the nationals do whatever you got to do to get him right now but um i don't know what did you make of that point that like if you're a closer and you are being asked to be in more tie game situations and relievers being used differently um can play a role in you not being as an as effective as you were previously well i do remember that like when craig kimbrell was on the red sox there's always this kind of running joke among red sox twitter that he would always like get hit hard in non-save situations i I do wonder and this is something where um i'd actually now be curious to go around and ask closers in particular if there's a different approach they have in non-save situations if there's and and you know maybe this isn't the case and i i I doubt they didn't like maybe your mentality just slips maybe your focus just isn't quite as there you know, when you think to yourself, and I agree that like a tie game is not is a non-safe situation, but it's also still an important situation. So, you know, I, I, I agree with you that, you know, certainly Iglesias has every right to be mad about that because when you're the closer, your expectation is I pitch in save situations. I get saved. I come in when there's a lead in the ninth inning. I'm not just, I'm not just any other reliever. So I get that. That's fair. I think, like you said, it probably doesn't do him any favors necessarily. Um, and it certainly doesn't jive with the way that teams use their best relievers now. And, and, you know, that's kind of the idea there is that Rice Iglesias is, or at least should be, or theoretically is at least the Reds' best reliever. I don't know if he actually is. I think right now that's probably Robert Stevenson. But, um, yeah, I, I, I do find it funny he would come out and say that because there is also that, that idea in baseball that it's like, no, you, I do what the manager asked me to do, and I'm not going to rock the boat. Um, but I don't know. I think, he, like you said, I think it's fair for him to be upset that he's being used in a way that he doesn't feel is most conducive to his success, or that is like any other reliever. Because in his mind, he's probably thinking, "I'm not any other reliever. I'm the closer. You know, I pitch with a lead. I don't come in in a tie game. I pitch with a lead." So, yeah, I, I can understand where he's coming from, and probably that frustration. I imagine that that I mean, you see that you know when the, when the Mets had their whole silly. Uh, Edwin Diaz situation where Mickey Callaway came out and said, I'm never going to use him or not never, but I'm not going to use him in, you know, in a tie game on the road. Um, I, I, I don't know how much of that is Callaway and slash Brody Van Wagen and slash the Mets own decision-making. I don't know how much of that is Edwin Diaz saying I would prefer not to pitch in tie game, but I think it's probably that same mentality of it's like, you know, pitch me in the situations that I like, I do best in these situations I am not like, you know, I, I think that kind of just makes sense. 
I think of the Mark Wahlberg thing of like, um, I'm the guy who does this job. You must be the other guy. And that's what all these closers are saying to themselves when these managers are putting them in these positions. Like, what the fuck are you doing? That like you're paying me to do this job and now you're using me like any other reliever. And I, I, I get it. I, I get where they're coming from. So it should be interesting to see if more closers like revolt. And uh, I'm, I'm glad that you got your next piece uh, <laughs> sorted out, John. <laughs> That's what this podcast is all about. Is it, this is John's next piece. This is my sandbox where I just work through <laughs> all of my ideas and figure mm-hmm. out and figure out what makes the most sense. So thank you to your yeah. listeners. And you know what else? There you go. Um, and you know what else doesn't uh, make sense if you're the White Sox front office is uh, why all your young pitchers are dying. Well, it's funny. It's funny you say that because Lucas Giolito just had an awesome start today. Um, mm. So at least one of their young pitchers is alive and functional. At least one. But I, it, yeah, I, I, know what, one. I know what you're saying. Like you got Michael Kopech blew out his elbow. Dane Dunning blew out his elbow. Um, Ronaldo Lopez just simply is not. He gets a lot of strikeouts, but he's extremely inconsistent. Lucas Giolito is the definition of inconsistent. Um, you know, Dylan Cease uh, has looked really good in the minors, but certainly you know he's still in the minors, and no one else has really worked out. Um, Carlos uh, Rodon is Carlos, and, uh, and that's right. Carlos Rodon is pre- has now presumably also blown out his elbow, which I mean, on the one hand, pitchers break, man, and that's the unfortunate reality of you know kind of banking on a strategy of young pitchers. Is that they 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 get hurt, you know? This is what happens. Uh, can't really be surprised that this is what happens. And it's also why I think that you know, at least for me, I've been so kind of down on what the White Sox have done over the last couple, and especially this winter, because of the fact that you you really cannot just rely on prospects. You have to supplement them with functional major leaguers. You can't just assume, okay, all these guys are going to work out. Guess what? That doesn't happen. I, I made a joke on Twitter earlier today based on um, uh, Disney releasing its its schedule of movies for the next basically decade, um, and it included five Avatar movies, or four Avatar movies. Oh, fuck yeah. Which is a crazy idea. Um, hey, hold on one sec. My dog is going nuts for some reason. Shut up. He's a big fan of the podcast. He is a big fan of the podcast. Oh, thank you. That's oh, like I was getting delivery. Um uh, let me uh, let me let me start that thought over with. Um, so yeah, I was you know the whole you got a whole idea that there are five Avatar movies now, um, or going to be for reasons nobody understands, and it just made me think like yeah, Disney's got that fifth Avatar movie scheduled for 2027, the same way Yankees fans ten years ago looked at Phil Hughes and Ian Kennedy and Jabba Chamberlain and Dylan Batansis and Manny Benuelos, who actually is on the White Sox now. Um, and we're like, look at all these Cy Youngs we have in our rotation. It just doesn't work that way. None of those guys panned out that way. Batances is the best one left of that group, and he's a reliever. And granted, he's a really good reliever, but like none of those guys panned out in the way that the Yankees and their fans would have assumed. And that's just what happened. That is baseball. Baseball is drunk and messed up, and it will break every pitcher it touches. You know. So I, I think with the White Sox, like one, you shouldn't really be surprised because that's what happened. And two, it's like, that's why it was so imperative, I think, for them. Maybe more than any other team, but, but certainly I think the Padres and the Phillies were up there too, and they ended up being the ones who got Harper Machado. But why it was so imperative for them to get at least one of those guys to help push this forward and so that you're not reliant on, well, if Carlos Rodon figures it out and if 
and if Lucas Giolito figures it out, and if Reynaldo Lopez figures it out, and if Michael Kopech gets healthy, that's a lot of ifs. You know, that's a lot of conditionals, and that's not a place you want to be. It's hoping for all of these different things to work out because that's probably not going to be the case. Yeah, brutal. I, I, I'm sorry, White Sox fans. I, I have a lot of White Sox love on Twitter and Josh Nelson, friend of the pod, and everybody else. Um, it's been a tough rebuild and uh, not getting Machado. It, uh, I mean, at least they have the brother-in-law, but I think they would rather just have uh, Machado. Um, last thing, then we'll wrap up. Uh, the Dodgers, they signed Travis Darno. AJ Pollock is hurt for a while. Big shocker there. Uh, they're gonna they're gonna get weird. Cody Bellinger is now banned from first base. How into you? How into the the Dodgers kind of having to mix and match um, their fielding situation right now? I mean that is the Dodgers' way, isn't it? That that's the most Dodgers thing is for is for Dave Roberts to have just this lineup that's basically a jigsaw puzzle. Um, it, it makes I mean it makes sense. I guess I mean I don't know what the appeal is about Darno trying to do trying to do something with Darno that the Mets already did and failed with. Um, but I think the more, I think the bigger thing with Darno is you have three catchers on that roster because now you have the flexibility to do stuff like you can play Austin Barnes in the infield or you can play Russell Martin at third base, which is a thing that somehow works. Um, or maybe you can play Darno in left field for reasons. I, I think, you know, the Dodgers' whole thing has always been about maximum flexibility and just having, you know, guys who can play four different positions so that way you can just always build um, a lineup that is you know, that can basically react to anything. You know, you can always have a perfect platoon lineup. Granted, it helps that these guys are actually good at defense, and I really, you know, I, I think the, the Dodgers will soon find out that Travis Darno in left field is not an experiment you want to continue for too particularly long. But it, it makes sense. I think the, and I think with the Pollock thing, again, and that's kind of similar vein, not quite as much because I don't think they had as strong a need, but, you know, the, the Dodgers went after Pollock because he was cheaper than Bryce Harper. You know, they were like, we'll oh, get, you know, 85, 80% of Bryce Harper's production for what ended up being like, uh, what, like 20% of the cost or something or the overall cost. Oh, but this is, yeah, it was something, it was very Dodger-y. And I remember talking to Bill Plunkett about it, um, where he was just defiant. He was like, the, 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 the Harper stuff is bullshit. Like, that's not something that they're even going to entertain in this. It's just, it's not going to happen. And that ended up being the case, but then you then you realize, well, there's a reason why AJ Pollock was available for what is you know effectively a relative discount because he can't stay healthy, right. and that sucks. Like I'm not, I'm, this is not me trying to suggest that AJ Pollock is bad. Like it, he seems like a very nice person. No, it's the Josh Donaldson thing where it's like, yeah, if you knew you were getting 150 something games out of him, yeah, he would have signed for more and gotten more years. But the reason they got a one year deal or a very che- a cheaper deal is because people are genuinely worried about his health. And not only that, but like you saw how how poorly he was producing. I think people were worried about that too. Is that like he's just not the same player as he was before he broke that elbow, when he looked like an all star kind of regular for the Diamondbacks. So uh, again, I I think this is the thing where it's like you know you it, it's like you you get what you pay for in a sense. And in this case, the Dodgers got a below average hitter who then got hurt because he has a long injury history. And that sucks for Paul. It's like, I'm, it's a bummer for him. And that, you know, I, I, you never want to see a guy go down with injury like that, but that's, I mean, what does the Dodgers really expect here? You know, I, I mean, and this is, and that's how you end up with Travis Darno in left field. Although again, the Dodgers have enough depth that that shouldn't be a thing that they have to do particularly often. But I mean, you know, it's, it's, I'm not surprised that this is where the Dodgers are though, with that combination of Pollock and with that, that organizational mindset of we want, um, 
the most guys who can do the most different things everywhere, basically. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see what they do. They'll be fine. The Dodgers, um, last time I checked, yes, the Dodgers are still very good at baseball. So um, I think they'll be fine mixing and matching um, everything in the – I mean, outside of the Padres, that NL West, um, I'm not really a, a, a Diamondbacks believer, or obviously Colorado Rockies, who it was just demoralizing to see uh, their playoff odds on Fangraphs because they're actually top 10 in attendance. I think they're number seven right now. They're sneaky, sneaky passionate, and Rockies Twitter is weird, and it, it's definitely on my bucket list. I want to go to Coors Field, and I want to watch um, a game there. Have you been? To Coors Field? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I really like Coors Field. I've been one time. It was uh, could be uh, three years ago this summer. Um, mm. I really enjoyed it. I think it's a it's a pretty stadium for starters. It's located in a really nice in in Denver's downtown. So there's plenty of stuff to do around the area. Um, you know, there's a lot of nice bars and restaurants. It's they're great sight lines. They're good concessions. And I think one of the cool things that the Rockies do there is they have this area out in in the outfield. I don't remember if it's right or left. But that's basically just a giant bar and social area where, you know, it, it, it's that idea where it's like if you want to go to the game, but you're not a hardcore fan or you don't particularly care what's going on or you just recognize that Rockies games tend to take forever because they're 19 pitching changes every every time. This is just a place you can go and just kind of hang out and have drinks and socialize while a game is also going on. Um and, I, and I, more I really, importantly, get a get a picture with the uh, the Jeff Francis the the Jeff Francis statue. Exactly. So I, I really like that idea. I know that the Marlins are doing something similar in their park. This idea that's like, look, a social area where you can just kind of hang out with your friends and have a few drinks while a game while a game is going on. I think that's a cool idea. So I, I really like Coors Field, um, even though it is haunted by the horrid presence of Dinger, one of the grossest and most evil mascots. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, if, if you ever if you ever get a chance to go, I highly recommend it. I, I also will note that the game I went to ended up being I don't know if it still is, but it was at the time the longest nine inning game in National League history. Mm. It was something like four and a half hours. It was a Diamondbacks Rockies game that was like thirteen to eight, where each team used like nine pitchers. It was actually kind of horrible in that regard, but it was cool to be there for for a little bit of history. I didn't even get to stick around till the end of it because I had to meet someone afterward, you know, and I told them, yeah, I'll just meet up after the game. And I figured that'll be like, you know, 10 o'clock or whatever. And it's like 1045. We're in the seventh inning. I'm like, okay, this is going to have to, something's going to have to give here. So, uh, but yeah, highly recommend Coors Fields. Uh, very, very nice ballpark. Um, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a guy who's been to a particularly huge number of them. I think I have like somewhere like 12 or so, 12 to 15, somewhere in there. But I, I liked it a lot. You know, it's, 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 it's a nice park. Okay. Well, we got to get you down to SunTrust. I will um, get you a Fuck Cobb County shirt, Braves t-shirt, <laughs> and uh, we can go and enjoy the real estate development together. That, that sounds like a plan right there. I'll get some Chick-fil-A and uh, a big sign protesting budget cuts to the, uh, to the Cobb County public library system. There you go. That's my kind of shit right there. John, thank you so much. We can uh, read you every day. Not every day. I guess it's every day. If you want to go to the site, you can you can find John's stuff every single day on si.com slash MLB. Um, read his latest nine inning column and uh, follow him on Twitter at J.A. Taylor. At, uh, is it J.A. Taylor 5? Is there a no, number? I feel like there's a number in yours. No, there's no number. It's just J.A. Taylor, T-A-Y-L. Okay. Um, yeah, that's, that's where I'm at on the Twitters. All right. 
Well, always a pleasure, sir. Let's uh, talk again soon. Let's do that. All right, we're back on the Chase Thomas podcast, and I am now joined by James Yarko. Uh, James is a Bucks writer, editor at BucksNation.com, a very good Tampa Bay Buccaneers blog on SB Nation. He's also a co-host of the Locked on Bucks podcast. James, good evening, sir. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? I'm good. I noticed um, on your Twitter, just perusing your Twitter, you have a who is that dude from the the prequels? I I should know General Grievous, I believe yes. is the name. Yes, and then you have a Star Wars background. Something tells me Star Wars is a big thing for you. It is actually my my profile picture is somebody was cosplaying as Grievous, um, and so I took the photo with with that person and my son when I took my son to celebration in Chicago last month. So that was that was a big trip for for me and my son. It was you know he has three older brothers, so it was just the two of us. It was really an absolute blast. So yeah, I'm I'm a huge Star Wars geek, and that's kind of what my son and I have together is collecting and watching the movies and things like that. What is celebration? Uh, it was a five day festival of nothing but Star Wars, and they had oh wow uh, yeah they had panels from you know the upcoming movie and. Uh, my son and I were fortunate enough to go to the uh, panel that had John Favreau there, who's doing a live action Star Wars series for the Disney Plus network. Um, just it was nothing but shopping and and workshops and it just all kinds of everything Star Wars you can imagine was in Chicago for five days. Interesting. Um, so I'll go ahead and tell you, I have a very. Maybe you you can I guess determine whether or not um, this is a very hot take, but um, I think Rogue One is still the best Star Wars movie by far. That's that's a little bit of a, a hot take, but I enjoyed okay. it immensely. It was um, damn good! It it was a rush. Like that was one of the few ones where it's like, oh man, I, I'm here for every moment of this movie. <laughs> yeah, it was. I I enjoyed it a lot. I I'm also one of the people that I really loved. The Last Jedi, which is incredibly divisive, mm-hmm. and people, it, oh yeah, people are still whining and crying about it uh, because apparently Ryan Johnson stole a bunch of people's childhoods by making this movie that's for current children, not forty-five-year-old children. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I really haven't haven't seen us well i shouldn't say that there are there is one star wars movie that i really just do not like but rogue one i thought Wait, was, which one is it? was re- uh, attack of the clones okay so you were not, in on Phantom not great um i i'm okay with it and i think it's because my my kids like it so much and darth maul is just awesome so <laughs> i enjoy watching watching him um yeah but all the prequels really have some rough moments well they have my guy hayden christensen so um jumper is like my favorite bad movie of all time and i will ride <laughs> for hayden uh until the end of time i'm I'm 100 here for him all the hayden slander not a not about it i you know i like hayden christensen too and it's just when you get into some of the dialogue that george wrote um i i don't put the the 
subpar performance solely on the shoulders of Hayden Christensen. It was something that Harrison Ford even said to him when they filmed the original was, George, you can write this crap, but we can't say it. Yeah, it's just, you know, all the all the garble that that he kind of throws together for this this universe. You know, that's that's tough for, you know, Hayden Christensen and Natalie Portman to sit there and and spew out in the or in the uh the prequel trilogy. So yeah, I, I like Hayden Christensen a lot. Um, could have, could have done a, a photo op or gotten an autograph from him, but it was just when, when my son and I were at celebration, but it was just so expensive. It was $200 for a photo op. And I'm like, yeah, no, Absolutely. I can't, <laughs> I can't swing that. I do regret not paying the, I think it was $85 for Peter Mayhew. Um, who of course just just passed away. So I was a little bummed, but you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah, um, it, it is weird seeing. I, I think pictures are a little bit more defensible than autographs. I'm yes, grown men get autographs. I, I don't. I, uh, what do you do with an autograph? I, I've never really understood the the appeal of an autograph. Like this, I, I don't. I don't get it. I, I never understood waiting in line for someone to sign something. I, I don't understand. At least a picture you can look at forever, and you're like, oh, I remember when I met him, this or her, and they were cool. Blah blah blah. blah. Like I get that, but autographs I've never never really understood. Yeah, I I mean I used to be an autograph person, uh, and I think as I've gotten older, I've just kind of gotten away from it. Um, kind of like how I used to be a big football jersey person yeah i i had probably upwards of 20 buccaneers jerseys through my life and as i've gotten older i've gotten farther away from that it's just i don't know i guess it's kind of a um, of you because i'm very anti-adult men wearing (laughs) jerseys with someone else's name on their back very unsettling for me there's one that i will still wear but it's not buccaneers it's um a Steven Stamkos lightning Jersey that I got for Christmas. Uh, and it's the, the authentic one. And it's the first true authentic Jersey I've ever owned. Um, and I absolutely love that thing, but yeah, as, as far as football jerseys, yeah. And I have baseball jerseys that, you know, just collect dust in my, in my closet. I can't bring myself to part with them, but yeah, much like the, the autographs. I think it's just something as you get older, you kind of get farther away from, but I'll sit there and I'll, I'll take, you know, my son to try to get autographs from people that he wants to get autographs from. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a big thing for him. So I kind of enjoy it from that aspect. Uh, yeah, I had taken him to uh, Buccaneers Bengals preseason game and he was able to get a mini helmet autographed by Gerald McCoy and Chris Baker. Now okay, I need to figure out, I have to figure out how to remove Sharpie from a uh, a mini helmet so that we can get rid of Chris Baker's awfulness off of the the mini helmet. Well, also, but, Gerald McCoy, who will be gone soon. We'll talk about that in a second. But uh, both oh, names yeah. well, might not. But but Gerald will always have a, a special place in, in my heart. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm not bitter towards him if they move on from him or if he's upset or anything like that. And you know, my son being so excited that oh my god, like this Gerald McCoy just signed my helmet. Like it was it was really cool to see his his reaction on that. So that's kind of my stance on autographs. If if my son wants to try to get one, I will do my best to to help him acquire that. But as for me, uh, it was, it was wild. David and I were at the combine in Indianapolis and they had roped off a section for people to stand there and try to get autographs. And it was all 
grown men. And, and I'm talking like older than me with stacks and stacks of mini helmets and footballs and boxes of cards. And I'm like, you're standing here for hours upon hours, hoping to get an autograph of someone. You may not even know who it is until you look at his name badge. And all you're going to do is try to hawk it on eBay. Like that's the kind of stuff that drives me nuts. It's weird. It's a weird culture. I'm not about it. And I'm <laughs> glad we're on the same page, but um, let's transition here to some actual buck stuff. Um, I, I wasn't planning on starting here, but uh, because of the news, I'm, I'm sure you know where I'm heading here. But uh, oh, yeah. Pierre Paul, uh, just I, I saw someone tweet out, I think it was Mike Renner, that he's like the rare person where it's like more dangerous for him to not play football than it is for him <laughs> to play football, um, which is a good way of putting it just because of his freak injuries. And this one just really sucks with a neck fracture and needing surgery. And this this is probably it, it you would think, at this point, but... A brutal blow to a defensive line that needs all the help they can get going into 2019. Yeah, well, and Tom Pelissaro on NFL Network said that, you know, he is seeking these second opinions, and it may be something that needs surgery, but it may also be something that he can be ready for week one. So the Bucks are kind of caught in limbo here. They they have an option, the way I understand it, and if I'm wrong, I'll, I'll take it on the chin because there's so many different people throwing out so much information that no one's really 100% sure. But it sounds like the Bucks can get out of the $7.5 million that was guaranteed in March by placing him on the non-football injury list. Now, if that would involve putting him on that list to void the guarantee and then release him i'm not sure but it's just it's one of these just completely dumb blind luck that that you know this black cloud that hangs over the buccaneers organization at times it seems you know would strike shortly after the draft at a position that they didn't address until day three when they're shifting to a completely completely different style of defense and it would be the second consecutive season that somebody that that the Buccaneers franchise expected to have a, a high impact on the season would be injured and lose an entire season in a car accident. You know, they dealt with this with Kendall Beckwith last year. He was a he was a passenger in a car, was in an accident, broke his ankle. They said it, you know, the Bucks released statements saying, you know, it's not serious. He's going to start on the pup list. He has to recover. And then as time went on, you know, it, it kept coming out that, you know, this is worse than we were led to believe. His football career could legitimately be in jeopardy. This has taken multiple surgeries to fix. It, it became a disaster. So for a car accident to cost, potentially cost another impact player season, it, it's, it's wild. And Buccaneers fans are losing their minds. And I've seen, I've seen the hot takes on Twitter. One of them from a a sports talk radio host in Tampa saying, "Oh, well, not drafting Josh Allen now is looming large." And and oh, Jason Light was an idiot for not drafting Josh Allen now. The, the Buccaneers were not going to draft a guy assuming that their star defensive end was going to break his neck in a car accident. It was one of the most idiotic things I've ever seen in my life. Um, so so sitting there saying that you know the Bucks should have should have been um you know drafting for in or drafting in anticipation 
of someone getting hurt is, is just it's a wild concept to me. No, that's stupid. That is a very <laughs> dumb take. And um, it should not, uh, we should not um, even discuss a take that bad. Um, and no, also, uh, Jason Light, great pick. That was a great first round pick. Um, oh, a good yeah. replacement for Quan Alexander, who actually wasn't even good. And um, I, I like this. I, I think ultimately they, they got a great middle linebacker for today's NFL and like he's going to join Deion Jones in this division as just a freak of nature who can do all kinds of stuff that um, will be fun to watch Um, it's basically just the Saints now who just refuse to do anything with their linebacking core who I believe um, I meant Ty Tail is he still in that rotation at linebacker I don't know but the the Saints are surviving with some unbelievable no-namers in that linebacking (laughs) core it's it's pretty great Um, McCoy What's going on? Is he going to get traded? Is this why is this relationship between Gerald McCoy and the Bucks so strange now? You know, I I don't really know how it all started. It, my my personal guess, and I don't have any kind of inside information into this particular relationship, but from someone who has followed McCoy, followed this organization, covered the team, my my best guess is that, you know, Gerald, who has been a, a face of the franchise for a long time, but he's also struggled to perform at times, is due a lot of money this year. He's due $13 million this year, $37 million over the next three years, and he's 31 years old. Not exactly the kind of, you know, formula you want for, for that kind of player. So, they bring in a new coaching staff. They bring in a new defensive coordinator who's going to change the defense. You know, Gerald McCoy is a phenomenal three technique defensive tackle, but he's suited for a four three. That's just kind of how he is. Now, I do agree with Gerald from the aspect of if you can play football, you can play football. You can adapt. You can, you know, mold your game to do what your coach needs you to do in this particular system. And Gerald McCoy is good enough to do that. The problem is the price tag. And if this if this price tag had come up when the Bucks had the kind of cap flexibility that they've had over the past few years, this is a non-issue. And I think the relationship has probably soured because of asking Gerald to restructure and take less money. You know, players don't want to take less money, just like organizations don't want to pay more money if they can get out of it. It's a business for both sides. So Gerald is absolutely within his right to look at Jason Light and say, no, this is the money you promised me when I signed this contract. This is what you're going to pay me. And Jason Light has every right in the world to say, we can't afford to pay you. The Buccaneers have one and a half million dollars under the cap. They can't even afford to sign their first round pick, let alone their entire draft class. So both both sides are 100% right in their stance. And if Gerald McCoy knows that and he thinks to himself, look, I've given this organization everything I've had, my blood, my sweat, my tears on some horrible, horrible teams, and now they want to take away some of the money that I feel I've earned when we have a chance to turn this around with a, you know, the first competent coaching staff that Gerald McCoy has ever had, you know, he might be willing to take less money to go somewhere else and maybe compete for a championship as his career winds down. And, and I would absolutely support him in that. I think the, 
just kind of all these things happening at once, it probably doesn't sit well with someone who has been through this organization or with this organization through thick and thin and has done everything he could in, in many years, been the only bright spot for this team when they've been winning four games or five games or, or whatever the case may be. So, you know, I it's one of those situations where neither side is wrong in what they're saying or what they're doing or what the outcome would be. And that makes this kind of stuff, uh, this kind of stuff tough is that there's no right answer. You can understand both sides. There's just a, a necessary, um, perspective aspect to this. And I don't know. It just kind of sucks. Cause like you said, he's been great for this team. He had that one year, uh, that, that blip year. Um, I think, was it two years ago where he was just weirdly bad? And then last year he was back, but he's been a very consistently um, good defensive tackle for this team. Great pick, great career there. Um, if you had to guess where he ends up um, at the start of this fall, where do you think he is? Ooh, wow, that's that's a good question. Um I guess it, what, it, what it would really boil down to is how much control the Buccaneers will have in the situation. Uh, you know, it, it was, I want to say it was Albert Breer, but I'm not 100% sure. Somebody over at the Monday morning quarterback had said that teams are basically sitting back and waiting for the Bucs to inevitably release him. Mm. They know they know the cap situation. They're just sitting there and waiting. Now, could it be a situation like we saw with Deshaun Jackson? Every team knew that Deshaun Jackson was gone. But Philadelphia was still willing to throw them a day three pick just to ensure that they got him. Mm. So the question would be, is someone willing to not only give the Bucks a pick for someone that is likely to become a free agent, but also take on that $37 million over the next three years just to guarantee that they get him and not have to bid against other teams? You know, if that's the case, I could see him going to a place like, you know, he could go to Arizona. He could go that's to New England. What I was thinking first. Yeah, you're going to you're going to lean towards these organizations that Jason Light has a good working relationship with that other GM. Mm -hmm. So obviously his time in Arizona, his time in New England, his time in Philadelphia has helped orchestrate some of these moves. But something that we suck. Do not give Bill Belichick. <laughs> no, thank you. I'm so sick of teams helping the Patriots, right. but sometimes you just kind of have to because in the long run, if the Bucks can get a pick for him and he does go to New England, then ultimately that's the best move for the Bucks because when when David and I had Aaron Freeman on on the Locked On Bucks podcast uh, on Tuesday's episode, he said that the Falcons would be incredibly interested in getting Gerald McCoy to add to their defense if the Bucks let him go and they have the money to do so. Yeah. So would you, would you rather trade him to new England? I, mean, I would and love Gerald McCoy in Atlanta right now, him and Grady Jarrett inside. I mean, absolutely sign me up, but Oh uh, yeah. But for I the Bucks, you, you want to see him twice a year or do you want to ship him off to the AFC in, in new England? Um, you know, the, the choice would, would be a, a very simple one. Um, ultimately I think it would boil down to if it's, if it's Gerald McCoy's choice, I think he's going to want to go somewhere that he knows that can contend for a championship, legitimately contend for a championship within those next three years, because I think his window is closing. 
but an opportunity to go to a Atlanta or a New Orleans and stick it to Tampa twice a year would be really, really inviting, I think, in, in his eyes. Well, at least you've got a bona fide superstar Vita Vea waiting in the wings. So um, I, I'm a big Vea fan. Okay. I um, <laughs> Not a great rookie year, though. Not a great rookie no. year. No, and and here's the thing that I, I try to remind myself, because we saw Vea come on towards the end of the year. So this guy, again, we're going back to that black cloud that hangs over, over the Advent Health Training Center there on One Bug Place. Vea gets hurt early in the offseason, misses training camp, misses the preseason, doesn't come in to you know, basically to, to be able to play until they play the bears. I think it was week four, week five, somewhere right in there. So you're looking at a guy who had no practice, no training camp, no off season workouts at all. And was thrust into a rotational role during the regular season. So to me, Vea's progression through the year was him basically having to go through his training camp and his OTAs and his preseason during the regular season. And, and like I said, as we saw, you got later into the season, he was getting more, he's getting back in football shape. He was getting more confident on that ankle and he really started to make an impact. So if that's, if, if the last quarter of the season is the Vita Vea that the Buccaneers are going to get for a full 2019 season, the guy can be an absolute game wrecker. Which is what they need. Um, Absolutely. Because if you look at this depth chart, especially at the linebacking spot, but also just their their defensive back situation, like um, they have they have a lot of talent. They did it through the draft and free agency and everything else. It's the back end that's fine. It's more of what happens um, with their front four and with Todd Bowles coming over. It, um, it's going to be interesting. But the thing that I keep looking back is um, with this group – my biggest question mark for the Bruce Arians regime in year one in Tampa Bay is how is this offensive line going to be? And I I have questions. Uh, it's not like Arizona Cardinals, like how are they going to, if they didn't have Kyler Murray, would he survive? Would they just go through a never ending, just dog shit of quarterback plays because they don't have time <laughs> and they're just, they give up and they just can't produce a good offensive lineman ever again. Um, what do you make of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers offensive line situation going into this fall, protecting Jameis who Arians wants and he wants to thrive. And um, part of that is Jameis has got to have time to step back and throw. Like he's got to be able to do those long dropbacks. And like Matt Ryan got murdered last year with like 42 hits and sacks and whatever. And it's just um, when you have a guy who needs more time than others, like Kyler and Russell Wilson who can navigate um, situations like that a little bit better. Baker too. Now, um, you just need a really good offensive line. Um, are are they well positioned to to have that this year? Yeah, it, I'll I'll shout out my my co-host David Harrison because he brought up something really interesting when we started getting into the offensive line discussion during the offseason, during the preparation for free agency draft, things like that. One of the biggest reasons we believe aside from the market not being great for left tackles your buccaneers fans wanted to scream and 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 you know light the building on fire when donovan smith was brought back you have a new regime coming in you have a new coaching staff a new offense being implemented 
revamping the offensive line just adds one more thing that the the coaching staff would have to basically address and and teach and fix allowing this offensive line to remain a cohesive unit for a second consecutive season is one less thing that Bruce Arians and Byron Leftwich have to worry about. Now, the offensive line, though it did have its issues, I'm not going to sugarcoat that at all, it's not in as bad of a shape as many people want to believe. We had Ryan Jensen on the Locked On Bucks podcast, and we kind of talked about you know, some of the penalties that were being called. And, and I mean, Jensen was called for more penalties last season than he was up to that point in his entire career. And he had expressed kind of how he felt that, you know, a lot of things that weren't being called when he was with Baltimore were then being called when he was with Tampa. So, you know, we're not going to get into a whole referee issue, but these are the kind of things that you you kind of have to look at. And the Buccaneers still finished with a top five offense. As bad of a year as they had, as bad as their defense was, their offense was still top five in the league. And Jensen had, had even said on our show, he goes, you don't have a top five offense if your offensive line isn't producing, which is very true. Yeah, it, it's absolutely true. Now, as far as being able to protect Jameis, I absolutely believe they can. You know, but they're going up against some very stout defenses, some very stout pass rushes. And the thing that the Buccaneers fans kind of tend to hang their hat on is Winston gets a lot of hate from a lot of people for a lot of reasons. But one of the things that the Buccaneers fans love about Jameis is his ability to produce outside of the pocket. He was. I'm 99% sure he was number one in the NFL. If he wasn't, he was top two in quarterback rating outside of the pocket. And he's he's very good at, at ad-libbing and being able to make things happen. Now, these are the same things that will cause him to get in trouble and throw those, those knuckle-headed interceptions that we've seen. But he can make some magic happen when he's escaping the pocket, eluding pressure, and, and creating plays. That's where that Brett Favre comparison that, right. that I've used has come into play. But as far as the offensive line is concerned, the biggest question mark is still going to be right guard. Um, not really sure how that's going to pan out. But the rest of the of the offensive line, you have somebody who should have been named an all-pro already to this point, and Ali Marpet. You know, on that left side with Donovan Smith, you have Ryan Jensen back for his second year. You, know, you still have DeMar Dotson, probably one good year left in him at the right tackle spot. So they're not in as bad of shape as people wanted to believe, but I'm not going to sit here and say that they're, you know, an elite unit by any means. And the last thing about Jameis in this group, you made a good point about him escaping the pocket and being good um, when he's on the move like that, but. One of the interesting things about him is that he has a super high uncatchable throw rate um, per PFF, which I thought was interesting is that like, it's weird. His pocket, like he was middle of the road, like in a clean pocket this year, but like he, he's really good on downfield throws. Like he's insanely accurate on that kind of stuff, but he throws a bunch of passes that are not catchable every game. Did you notice that? Is that something Bucks fans notice when they watch the games is he'll just have a, a couple every game where you're like, how was anyone supposed to catch that? Um, it's usually not very many that I say, okay. you know, 
how in the world is is anyone supposed to catch that? There have been times where I've seen him throw to like Adam Humphreys, and I would joke around on on Twitter, be like, apparently he thought he was throwing to OJ Howard, um, you know, because you have There's like a, a second. By the way, he's not in my notes, but OJ Howard before he got injured, just lighting up the room. He was like the George Kittle that no one knew about. OJ Howard, I will I will argue this to the death. When healthy is a top three tight end in the NFL. He's that good. The problem is he's been injured two years in a row. So people, you know, from a, from a national standpoint, have not seen how incredible OJ Howard is. This was a guy that got flagged for offensive pass interference. I kid you not because a defensive back ran into him and bounced off. He's, like that. he's a massive man. He is a, he, he's a very large athletic just superhuman. He is a human mismatch. There is not, I, I would say there is not a, a defensive player in the NFL that can legitimately cover him one-on-one. He is that good, but he's got to stay healthy. He absolutely has to stay healthy. Um, but, but going back to your, your question about, about the uncatchable throw rate, my, I, I like PFF, a little bit. My issue with with PFF has been, you know, not really being sure as to where they're coming up with these grades and and their ability to grade players when they don't understand the actual assignments. They, you know, they don't have all the playbooks and, and all that, that that they can compare it to. But that's not to say that that some of their information isn't incredibly valuable. It's a tool, just like watching film is a tool and, and anything else. So there would be situations in Bucks games where Jameis would throw a deep ball to Deshaun Jackson and come to find out there were plenty of opportunities where Deshaun Jackson would kind of lay up a little bit, wouldn't exert the effort to catch the ball. You know, my question would be, are those being considered uncatchable passes or are those being knocked against Deshaun Jackson? So I'm always a little weary to get into the the PFF grades too much. That's not to say that you know it would have helped Jameis's score any more than than what it was. But you know we did see situations like that where you know a ball would be maybe two yards in front of Deshaun. One of those that you could easily tell that if he lays out he's going to catch it. And instead he slows down and starts running towards the sideline. Yeah. Those are the kind of things that really started to get under our skin. And of course, Jameis would get blamed. Yo, you have the best deep threat in the NFL. How can you not hit him? Well, because the best deep threat in the NFL doesn't like the quarterback and he's not really trying to help out at all because he just doesn't care at this point. Well, it should be interesting. And this leads us to Bruce Arians, who uh, could have moved on if he was just like, I'll take this job, but we're not uh, keeping Jameis. But obviously, he, he's a believer in Jameis. Um, was Bruce Arians the guy you wanted when uh, Dirk Cutter was fired? Is that uh, when you saw the the names that were popping up for this job, was Bruce Arians at the top of your list? I will gladly take credit for the fact that I started a hashtag BA to the Bay campaign in november of 2017 oh wow okay i i have wanted bruce arians to team up with Jameis winston since arians was still coaching the cardinals in fact david and i david and i would talk about on the podcast what would it take 
to basically pull a Gruden and trade for Bruce Arians. That's how badly we wanted Bruce to come to Tampa, and we felt he was the coach that could get Jameis to the levels that we expected him to go to. Um, so, yes, I, I was I was all in on on Bruce Arians being the guy. There were a couple other names that got thrown out that I was like, you know what, that would be a pretty solid fit. I don't mind that. But it was it was never going to work with Dirk Cutter because Dirk and Jameis, you know, say what you will, they didn't get along. You know, plain and simple, you have a young quarterback who has a head coach slash offensive coordinator who was pounding the table for the Bucks to draft the guy that went to Tennessee. You know, he didn't want Jameis to come in back when Lovey Smith was the head coach and Dirk Cutter was hired as the offensive coordinator. He was like, I want Mariota to come in and run my offense. I need Mariota. Mariota is going to fit what my offense does. I want Mariota, you know, yada, yada, yada. They drafted Jameis. So Cutter adapted a little bit, but you could tell the relationship was not great. And, and last season, you could tell that Cutter was chomping at the bit to do whatever he could to get Fitzpatrick back out on the field. Luckily, Jameis helped his cause throwing four first half interceptions in Cincinnati, mm-hmm. but Fitzpatrick didn't do any better when he, when he went back out. I had, I had a lot of problems with some of the things that Cutter did. Um, you look at the game against Washington when the Bucks set an NFL record for the most offensive yards in a game without scoring a touchdown. And Peyton Barber was phenomenal in that game. But as soon as the Bucks crossed midfield, Peyton Barber got zero carries. For a head coach that wants to preach, pound the rock, and take shots when you get the chance to not give your running back any carries on the opposing team side of the field, that it's inexcusable. So the ultimately, like their rushing attack under the Dirk Cutter era was always atrocious. Like going back to, I mean, there was the Doug Martin getting old and washed that, that didn't help things, bad offensive line. And also, um, who was the other one in that time? Oh, Jaquiz. You had Jaquiz, uh, yeah. uh, come back to life, uh, temporarily in uh, Tampa, but it, it's been a roller coaster of badness. And we, you even mentioned, uh, the Ronald Jones from USC who just, what what happened there? Like, is it a dirt cutter scheme thing, or can some of the like, or should we expect uh, things to improve on the running side uh, going forward in Tampa Bay? I would absolutely expect things to improve. This, you know, Bruce Arians was was at a fan event, you know, for the um, the club level season ticket holders, which are the you know the super expensive season tickets. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so he was fielding questions from these fans. And somebody said, you know, you've been watching all this film, Dirk and and Byron and Todd Bowles. They sat down and they not only watched all the game film, they watched film of every single practice, every single day of training camp, every day of OTAs, every everything. If it was on the field and there was video of it, they watched it all. So somebody said, you know, watching all of the practices and all the games and, and everything, who really stood out to you? And Bruce Arians gushed over how much he loved Peyton Barber and how how he truly believes that Peyton Barber is a 1,200-yard back you know, with the proper 
with the proper scheme. So buy Peyton Barber stock for fantasy this fall is what you're saying. Uh, yeah, and it's somebody that you're going to be able to steal probably later in the draft because mm-hmm. people are going to look at his season this year. They're going to look at Ronald Jones, and they're going to say, well, the Bucks really can't run the ball. Dif- different uh, different scheme, different regime. It's Peyton Barber is going to have a very nice year. And, you know, Arians likes, likes Ronald Jones too, and you go back and you look at Ronald Jones at USC, he wasn't real great. His first couple of years, it kind of takes him a little bit to fully grasp what his responsibilities are, fully grasp what the scheme is. And I think, again, pure speculation on my point, I think that might be one of the reasons they brought in Andre Ellington into that running backs room is to help bring along Peyton and Ronald Jones in this scheme that Ellington has has played in before and really get them up to speed a little bit faster because the running game is going to be a key component to Bruce's offense succeeding. You know, we know the no risk it, no biscuit and and the if you ever have your you know, your top receiver one on one, I don't care what the down and distance is, you throw it to him. You know, that was what he preached to to Peyton and uh, Andrew Luck and Ben Roethlisberger and Carson Palmer that he doesn't care if it's third and one. If you have, in this case, if you have Mike Evans one on one, you know, you throw him the deep ball. You know, that's that's just how he is. But you also look back at you know, a guy like David Johnson and, and what an integral part he was to the Cardinals offense and the Cardinals success. Bruce is going to need that to really put the pressure on all these opposing defenses and make them, they have to respect the run game and open things up for Jameis a little bit more. Because if, if it's looking like that dirt cutter offense where they go out there and they throw three straight times and punt, you're, you're not catching anyone off guard when it's, you know, first and 10 and you have Jacquez Rogers as the running back, you're not throwing the ball. It was the same issue back when Charles Sims was there. We knew if Charles Sims was on the field, it wasn't going to be a run play because Charles Sims could run the ball. You know, you were you were sitting there telegraphing to the defense exactly what you what you were, and defense coordinators came out and said the Buccaneers are predictable. They're not going to be predictable anymore, especially if Bruce can get Peyton and Rojo really going. Well, that's a positive development because the receiving core, um, we know what that offense was. Even without a running game, it was still a top 10 offense in TBOA last year. Um, Bruce Arians figures to help that. And if Peyton Barber um, and Ronald Jones gets better, like that offense is going to be good. And uh, this this division is tough because I think the the Falcons are going to be a better offense in 2019, I think. Um, the Panthers, depending on Cam Newton's health, uh, should be a better offense in 2019. I think, uh, just having another year of North Turner and getting used to that system. And then you have the saints who we know is going to be a top 10 offense. So it's very much in play that the NFC South has four top 10 offensive DVOA, uh, teams, uh, this fall. It, it, it's just, it's a, it's, it's a tough division. You can make the case. It's the toughest division in football. Oh yeah. And I've been, I've been pounding that or uh, you know banging on that drum for the last decade because it, it really is it was for a long time up until the panthers did it uh there had never been a team that won the division back-to-back years it's just consistently so competitive and they went on a run there for a while where the team that finished last would finish first the following year um so yeah it's it's constantly 
the most competitive division in in the NFL. And I'm very interested to see how the Falcons do because again they they brought Dirk Cutter back now, and if he's as predictable in Atlanta as he was in Tampa. Atlanta might be in a little bit of trouble and, and something else that we talked about with Aaron Freeman on, on the show is exactly how brutal the Bucks and Falcons schedules are. I mean, they both got, they got hit pretty hard. I mean, we've all heard, you know, that the, the schedule guy from the NFL came out and said, you know, I'm not really supposed to root for anyone, but I'm really rooting for the Buccaneers in October because they're making the Bucks go seven weeks without playing a home game. Yeah, they they have a quote unquote home game, but it's in London. Oh. You know, the Bucks the Bucks are going to travel nearly twenty five thousand miles in a stretch of seven weeks. Shit. Okay. Yeah. Oh God, that is. <laughs> and then. That's oh yeah, it's, it, it's terrible. Oh, and I'm then with the, the schedule f- now, uh, I'm going on the under with the Bucks, twenty nineteen. I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm sorry, but let's run through this quickly. They open with the Forty ers who I think are going to mm-hmm. be much better this year if Jimmy Garoppolo is healthy. Love their draft. Um, you go to Carolina. Thir- on Thursday night. Uh, Giants at home, that's a win. So you're maybe one and two. To the Rams. <laughs> I mean, just, what? Is, oh, my God. Um, to New Orleans. Panthers at home. At Tennessee. At Seattle. Well, pan- the Panthers at home is in London. Oh, that's right. That's Okay, so this is the stretch. So it starts, mm-hmm. I guess. Okay, so it starts in Los Angeles with the Rams. Go to New Orleans. Go to London to play the Panthers. Go to Tennessee. Go to Seattle. Oh my God! And then you get Cardinals at home. That's when you come back. Saints at home. At Atlanta. At Jacksonville. Colts at home. At Detroit. Houston. This is a brutal schedule. Oh my God! Yeah. I hadn't looked at this and, yet. Oh. And then what? What Aaron Freeman brought up is the Falcons have five consecutive division games. I did know that. Yes, that is, that is, that is so mean. Who does that? I don't know. This this schedule is, 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 it's baffling to me. This was, and I, I haven't, I haven't gone into what the Panther schedule looks like. Three games though, for the Falcons. It's at Minnesota Eagles at home. And then at Indy, The way that the schedulers worked the the NFC South, I think, is the apology for the missed pass interference to the Saints. They're basically handing the Saints the division and saying, our bad, go ahead and take a first round bye in the playoffs. The Falcons have a stretch where they go to Houston, go to Arizona, Rams at home, Seahawks at home, and then at New Orleans. I mean, the... I think both teams are going to be lucky to go eight and eight, nine and seven this year. And that might get you a wild card. Who knows? But it could, it oh could. God. Oh. Yeah. Brutal, brutal stretch. Oh my God. I, I just hadn't realized <laughs> it was this bad. I, this is, this is upsetting. It, this is very upsetting for all NFC South fans. James, we have to run, but this was, this was great. I really appreciate you taking the time tonight. Oh, it was my pleasure. I, I had a great time. Well, we can uh, read you on BucksNation.com. We can listen to you on the Lockdown Bucks podcast. Um, is there anything that we need to check out specifically from uh, you this week or the site or the podcast uh, that we should look out for? 
Uh, you know, David and I on, on Locked On Bucks have been talking to the Locked On hosts of the other NFC South teams. So we, we have our Panthers episode that came out on Monday. We had the Falcons episode that came out on Tuesday. And we will have Ross Jackson, the host of Locked On Saints, on the show on Thursday, just kind of getting their feel for their offseason, their draft, and how things are kind of shaping up. As far as Bucks Nation, just all the coverage that you're going to want, especially everything involving the the current JPP situation, the ongoing Gerald McCoy saga, and then some more fallout from the draft, how how things are going to fit, players on the bubble, those kind of things. Um, so, yeah, just, just keeping busy. The NFL year never stops. All right. Sounds great. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And James, let's talk again soon. All right. Sounds great. Thank you so much. And that'll do it for today's episode of the Chase Thomas podcast. I just want to remind you guys, if you like today's episode and you are subscribed on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, I would really appreciate it if you could take a second, leave the show a five-star rating and a review. If uh, you're not an Apple Podcast listener, remember you can find the show on Spotify, TuneIn Radio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Uh, be sure to check out chasethomaspodcast.com where you can access all of my previous episodes and also find all my writing. I'm writing there fairly often. And also follow me on Twitter at Chase underscore Thomas and like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash Chase Thomas Writer. Uh, thank you for your support and we'll be back with another episode very soon. Thanks, guys. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah.